President Trump has the North American Free Trade Agreement in his sights, and maybe all other multi-party trade packs as well. Hi, everybody. I'm Bob Bowman, Managing Editor of Supply Chain Brain, and this is the Supply Chain Brain Podcast. NAFTA was a popular whipping boy during the 2016 presidential campaign, drawing punishment from both major candidates. But President Trump has made a special effort to criticize it. So what is the administration really out to do with regard to this 25-year-old agreement among Canada, the U.S., and Mexico? Repeal it? Walk away? Renegotiate? Modernize? All of these options have been discussed, but we still don't know what the president intends to do not to mention how Congress will respond. Against this backdrop of uncertainty, I'm speaking today with Alex Koff, partner in the law firm of Venable LLP. He specializes in international trade and policy, serving as general counsel to many U.S. companies and foreign subsidiaries doing business here. He's going to give us his best guess as to the shape that NAFTA will take in the months and years ahead, assuming that it survives at all. We'll learn of its possible impact on business, labor, and consumers, and get a sense of the general direction of U.S. trade policy under this administration. So here is my conversation with Alex Koff. Alex Koff, welcome to the program. Thanks for having me. Where are we now with regard to the possible so-called renegotiation of NAFTA, the North American Free Trade Agreement? This is front and center. This is what everybody's talking about, certainly in Washington and I think also around the world. In NAFTA, we are right now in the 90-day period where the Trump administration has formally advised Congress that they're going to try and renegotiate. And this is really against the backdrop of a really strong, muscular America first international economic policy. In his inaugural address, Trump teed off a number of key themes that he repeated throughout his presidential campaign, promising that every decision on trade, taxes, immigration, and foreign affairs really are going to be focused to benefit American workers and families. And in his first joint address to Congress at the end of February, he stated that he basically has a simple crucial mandate where he's going to put American citizens first. And he emphasized that theme when he talked about how his job is really not to represent the world, but really to represent the United States of America. And I really think that it's this focus on America first and looking inward that's really carried throughout his remarks, which is also reflected in the renegotiation on NAFTA. And it's also something else that came out in the 2017 trade policy agenda that was released by the Office of the U.S. Trade Representative the day after his joint address to Congress on March 1st. The president has issued a number of executive orders since he came into office on bi-American, high-American, higher-American. And then on the NAFTA, in his joint address to Congress, the president praised protective policies and he denounced what he believes are high tariffs by U.S. companies selling overseas and argued that foreign companies importing products into America are charging basically nothing or almost nothing. I think that really backstops where we are with NAFTA and how we got here. So against all of that, the president 
has said that he believes strongly in free trade. That was also emphasized on his most recent trip, his first international trip, and his talks to the G7. And despite believing in international trade, I think on January 23rd, three days after taking office, he signed the executive order withdrawing the U.S. from the TPP, the Trans-Pacific Partnership Negotiations and Agreement. And within two weeks of taking office, he suggested it was time to add an extra S to NAFTA that it would read really the North American Free and Fair Trade Agreement. That really sort of gives the backdrop to enable us to answer your question, which is, where are we? Well, on May 18th, the newly installed U.S. trade rep, Bob Lighthizer, he formally notified Congress that the U.S. intends to initiate negotiations with Canada and Mexico regarding the modernization of NAFTA. And I think that word modernization and input matters a great deal. And in his letter to Congress, he said the negotiations are expected to begin as soon as practicable. But that basically means that they're not going to really start before mid-August 2017 because there's a 90-day notice period. In that time, the Office of the U.S. Trade Representative is not standing still. They're in the midst of seeking comments from interested parties on negotiating objectives. They want to look at what's needed to really bring this historic agreement modernized into today's world. And they're looking to comments that will assist the USTR as it develops its negotiating objections and positions. So I think that's really where we are with NAFTA right now. Do you get a sense of what might be some of the things within NAFTA that he considers to be, quote unquote, unfair, and what might be the most sensitive points open for renegotiation? That's a really good question. I think people are trying to figure out particularly what is unfair. And I think there's a lot of people who are concerned about opening up areas for negotiation where they really don't want to open up those areas again. So I'm not answering your question head on, but in terms of the things where people, I think, are concerned about opening, the, the two things that come to mind are the automotive sector with negotiating new rules of origin and being concerned that there's going to be a reopening of the 62.5% rule of origin in the automotive sector, given the complex supply chains that are there. And I think people are also really quite concerned about agriculture. The USTR is quite sensitive to that. USTR Lighthizer has said, I think up on the Hill, our objective uh, really has to be, I think, quote unquote, do no harm. So in those two areas, I think people are going to tread lightly, although in the automotive sector, they're trying to make it look a little bit broader and they're trying to make it ensure that U.S. automakers are competitive vis-a-vis the EU and NAFTA could be sort of a springboard for that. Hmm. And answer in, in one additional way about uh, things that aren't covered in the NAFTA where it can really sort of move forward a little bit more. That would be in digital issues. Victoria Espinel, who was a long-term USDR hand, she's now the CEO of the BSA and the Software Alliance, has said that NAFTA is really a great opportunity to create a trade agenda for the future. So I think that that's another area where, where people may be looking to expand on what NAFTA never covered because it didn't anticipate it when it was passed so many years ago. So modernization might not be such a bad word. I mean, the trade landscape 25 years on is quite different than what it was when NAFTA was first approved. So maybe there is room for some update. I mean, what other ways? You talk about digital. That certainly is probably the most obvious way that the world has changed. Do you have a sense of what else might be within NAFTA or what other ways it might be changed just to bring it up to date with the way that trade is conducted today? Well, I can tell you what people have been talking about. And in a lot of ways, ironically, people are also looking to the TPP agreement that was negotiated in that most recent multilateral effort. They're looking to some of the examples that were negotiated in TPP. So you have digital 
And underneath digital, I think you're talking about e-commerce, data flows, data localization issues. Really, the role of the internet in international commerce has expanded dramatically. And after parties can consider discussions on issues related to cross-border transfer information by electronic means or forced localization of data centers where people process and store data relevant to their businesses. That could be a real key issue. Other issues could include things like intellectual property rights, IGR provisions in subsequent free trade agreements, free trade FTAs that the United States has negotiated. They've evolved in several ways, and after parties may consider expanded IPR provisions because, as you probably know and, and listeners probably know, services and IPR have become a major focus of the United States economy, and that's something that's going to have an increased focus. I'm trying to get a fix on what it is about Mexico that that the current administration objects to. I mean, when it comes to China, we talk about dumping. We talk about dumping of steel and solar panels and tariffs and unfair treatment of our stuff in Chinese markets and a lot. That doesn't seem to really be an issue. I mean, Mexico's not dumping stuff here, and we're not worried about Mexican automobiles. It really seems to come down to more to the question of immigration, doesn't it? At least at least that's how it seems to me. What are the sore points here that need addressing? That's a good question from the U.S. perspective. What are they looking to do? And I think that in the past, President, I don't actually have the exact figures in front of me, but he has quoted a trade deficit with Mexico. But my understanding on those quotations is that he actually talked about it in terms of the manufacturing sector, but he did not include the numbers related to services and other related issues that are going back, which would, some critics argue, would erase the, the trade deficit that the president had quoted. Vis-a-vis Mexico coming to the United States, I think there, the issues specifically in Mexico also include immigration, but I think they also include security types of issues, and that if there's going to be a modernization of NAFTA, you may look to see from the Mexican side, and I think Mexican government officials have alluded that they want to broaden NAFTA negotiations to include bilateral or even trilateral cooperation on security and immigration issues as well. At the end of the day, I think that the priority for the Mexican government will likely be to improve the agreement rather than withdraw from it. But that's, I think, some background there. There is one area where there was a, a historic issue, and that was involving trucking provisions. And it's possible that a NAFTA renegotiation could address trucking issues. The implementation of NAFTA and trucking provisions was a major trade issue between the U.S. and Mexico for many years, and the United States had actually delayed its trucking commitments under the agreement. NAFTA had provided Mexican commercial trucks full access to U.S. border states in 1995 and full access throughout the U.S. in 2000, but that was delayed by the U.S. because of what they cited as safety concerns. Uh, the two countries did negotiate and cooperated to resolve that issue over the years, and they engaged in many, many talks about it. And I think by at least two years ago, by, by 2015, the issue had pretty much been resolved. But that may be another flashpoint that would come up again if you're looking to renegotiate the NASA and open up old wounds. And you'd expect something perhaps from the International Brotherhood of Teamsters or, or others seeking to reignite that dispute. That may be another area. One of the most controversial aspects of the Trans-Pacific Partnership was the investor-state dispute settlement language that allows private companies to sue governments if governments engage in actions that somehow damage their brand or lead to lost profits. And, of course, that is in NAFTA as well. I'm not sure the extent to which it's been used over the 25 years or so, but I'm wondering if the renegotiation of NAFTA might take a hard, cold look at that and perhaps even remove it. 
it's possible. A lot of people have said that the Chapter 19 anti-dumping countervailing duty provisions, everything that was related to that, well, that was sort of an original genesis for NAFTA, some have credited. And under the investment provisions, the bits, is a little bit different. All three countries, I think, have an interest in revising the NAFTA investment chapters to reflect more recent agreements. I personally was involved in an investor state case where we represented a Canadian investor against the United States government. It was actually argued at the World Bank over an eight-day trial. It was a $970 million claim, and it was the Methanex case. The United States won the case, and I think the United States has won, if not all of them, then I think certainly the vast, vast majority of cases brought. I don't see one actually having been actually awarded to the investor, but I could be wrong on that. I haven't followed this closely. But USFTAs, including the NAFTA and bilateral investment treaties, you know, they maintain core investor protections that reflect U.S. law and obligations to provide investors with non-discriminatory treatment, a minimum standard of treatment, protections against uncompensated expropriations, and so forth. Since NAFTA, investment chapters and FTAs, and in U.S. model bits, U.S. model bilateral investment treaties, they've undergone changes in order to clarify certain provisions and generally affirm the government's right to regulate, to pursue environmental health or safety concerns. So as investment chapters, especially investor state dispute settlement provisions, have drawn increased scrutiny in recent U.S. FTAs. You know, NAFTA was the first one to contain one, and it allows investors to bring those arbitrations against a host government. There's probably room there to tighten those agreements and, and modernize those as well, if not eliminate them altogether. Or at the very least, weaken them to some extent and reassert yeah. the power of the right of governments to to do what they need to do in terms of environmental labor laws and brand protect uh, and, and health laws and stuff like that, right? Yeah, yeah, that's correct. So I want to get a quick sense of the, the three major groups that stand to be most affected, I would assume, that would be industry, labor, and consumers. Can we quickly take those one at a time, and can you give me a quick capsule idea? Let's start with industry and manufacturers and the like. I know it's way too early to come up with any actual conclusions, but what's your feeling about manufacturers and industry in general and retailers and the like and how they might be impacted by a renegotiation? Actually, can I handle the first and the third together, and then we'll talk about labor? We can put industry and consumers into the same bucket if you want. Sure, go ahead. What I'd like to do is talk about that in, in the context, perhaps, of the footwear industry and put that in the context of rules of origin and should the rules of origin for the NAFTA be renegotiated. Because on the question of whether or not rules of origin should be changed, you have different competing groups in industry arguing different things, and that the impact of that rule would affect consumers in a different way. Right now, under the NAFTA, there's a 55% the value of footwear product and the entire upper, which means everything except the sole issue. All of that must originate in the NAFTA region. So that's the existing rule today. And on one side of the argument, you have the footwear distributors and retailers of America. Those are the groups that represent companies like Nike. They're arguing and those footwear brands rely heavily on imports of athletic shoes. They're urging the administration to relax the NAFTA rule of origin. On the other side, you have the Rubber and Plastic Footwear Manufacturers Association. Those are the folks that represent the domestic producers, folks like New Balance. They're going to be opposed to any relaxation of NAFTA's rule of origin. And both of those folks are arguing different things to the administration. According to the rubber and plastic folks, the New Balance side, relaxing the rule of origin would run counter to a key Trump administration focus for the NAFTA renegotiation, which is strengthening U.S. manufacturing, and that the focus has really been in NAFTA more on autos and high-value manufactured products rather than the smaller products like footwear. 
but that NAFTA's rules of origin for footwear has the effect, and this is the argument from the Nike side, of driving up costs for consumers and that relaxing and permitting the rule of origin to be reduced or loosened, similar to what you would have seen with AGOA, for instance, the African Growth and Opportunity Act, which actually sees something more like a 35% regional tariff content threshold with no requirement for uppers. Putting it in context with those other agreements the United States had, in their perspective, would actually ease the burden of cost on the consumers. So it depends who you're going to talk to, and I think you're going to see different industries really arguing what's really in their best interest. None of this has stopped the great preponderance of footwear, or maybe at least athletic shoes, to be imported from Asia. They, they have all this time, so it certainly hasn't stopped the, the producers from sourcing their production there all along. Yeah, I think that's probably right, yeah. Okay. <laughs> Fights between the tops and the bottoms of the shoes. Boy, that's uh, that's interesting. And then and you said the auto industry, too, has had a presence in Mexico higher and lower, depending on the pendulum swing at any given time. What might be the future of that? Or do you think auto manufacturers might have to bring more of their production back into the United States proper because of this? Or could they, could they can still continue to use Mexico as still a relatively inexpensive place to produce automobiles or assembly or parts or whatever? Well, I think that if you're looking at the auto industry, both sides of the border believe that NAFTA's 62.5% auto rule of origin should not be altered. I mean, that's what I've been seeing, at least in the press. And that ranges from the American Automotive Policy Council president, Matt Blunt, um, when he had a comment on May 18th about this. He said that, I think, basically, instead of changing the rule of origin vis-a-vis NAFTA, he's looking beyond to say things like, we hope that the administration is going to fight to ensure that others accept U.S. standards, and I think he's looking towards the EU for that perspective. I mean, Caroline Hughes, who's the vice president of government relations at Ford in Canada, was sort of of the same mind. She said, you know, while continuing to support trade in the region, any modernization of NAFTA should encourage trade diversification outside the region by ensuring that North American vehicles can compete in global markets. So I, I think you're seeing, a, from what, I, what I've been tracking, the auto industry on both sides of the NAFTA battle are actually in alignment and they're actually looking as a North American industry, because I think the supply chains are so integrated. Okay, well, let's take a quick look at labor, because labor unions have seen uh, the, their power weakening progressively over the last few years, indeed decades, what stance or power might they have under a renegotiated NAFTA? The United States international president, Leo Girard, also had said labor rights must be central to a NAFTA renegotiation, and they should lock partners into enforceable standards, which will allow for a free and independent labor movement in all countries. So I think what he's really trying to do is say a framework must be put in place which will ensure a timely remedy of labor violations and uh, permit transnational bargaining. If you're looking at things that are also said by the AFL-CIO, President Richard Trumka, he said NAFTA's modernization should result in better labor and environmental standards and also emphasize that aspect, saying things like we need to evaluate and effectively enforce worker rights environmental standards, eliminate excessive corporate privileges, and prioritize good jobs and safeguard democracy. It's unclear what the meat of that is and how labor will play. And I think it also depends on the focus of the Trump administration on sort of the twin goals of manufacturing. This goes back to that footwear example that we talked about, and also understanding that the U.S. economy is really driven to a great extent by services and how a movement to encourage U.S. manufacturing and alter the rules and playing field 
could potentially backfire and hurt services, which is a big driver and engine. What do you see as the backdrop against which NAFTA will be renegotiated? In other words, many have pointed out that we may be entering a world that will consist largely of bilateral trade relationships and the multilateral agreements such as typified by the failed TPP will become essentially a thing of the past. And with that, if that is in fact the case, what does that bode for NAFTA? If you're looking at multilateral negotiations that President Trump, when he was arguing for renegotiation of NAFTA, and he talked about agricultural issues, and people got quite concerned when it came to agricultural issues, I think it sent shockwaves through the community. People were concerned that, that a withdrawal would have that type of an impact on the community. And what it comes down to is that by engaging in a bilateral approach, the president was trying to do hard targeted negotiations that he feels would gain increased leverage and permit increased negotiation objectives and success than you would obtain in a multilateral relationship. There's two things here to think about. The first is, this isn't new. Australia has the Productivity Commission, and the United States also has the U.S. International Trade Commission. Both look at issues from an economic perspective, and they can be tasked by, uh, I mean, in the U.S. context, the ITC can be, can be tasked by the uh, administration or can be also requested by Congress to do economic detail, detailed economic studies about the impacts of certain trade deals. That being the case, I'm, I'm simply asking, does the future consist of a more of a reliance on bilateral versus multilateral trade, trade negotiations? Do you think that the United States will come to depend more on the one-to-one type agreements as opposed to the big multi-party ones like TPP? Under the Trump administration, yes. I think that's clearly the administration's stated goal, that they will look bilaterally to negotiate these things rather than on a multilateral basis. Whether that will be the global approach, I'm not so sure. I think that the members of the TPP negotiations are, at least the, the, the recent trade press says that they're less willing to reopen the negotiation to try and encourage the United States to come back in. The president, as well as the USTR, has said that they're interested in pursuing those negotiations on my on a bilateral basis, and although they've removed themselves from the multilateral context of TPP, they're still interested in moving forward with TTIP, which is the negotiation with the EU. I understand that the EU is obviously more than one country, but I think they're, they're looking to do that uh, with the customs union on, on a bilateral basis. Well, there are so many unanswered questions as we wait for things to formalize a little bit more, and it would be interesting to check back with you in 90 days or 100 days or so to see what's happened in the meantime. We could have another interesting discussion about that. But in the meantime, Alex Koff uh, of Venable, I want to thank you so much for taking the time to kind of give us a preview of what shape NAFTA might take going forward. Thanks very much for being with us. Thanks for having me. That was my conversation with attorney Alex Koff of the Venable Law Firm, talking about the future of NAFTA and U.S. trade policy. We're online at www.supplychainbrain.com, where we post a new episode of this podcast for streaming or downloading every Friday. You can also read my Think Tank blog, watch thousands of videos, and access all of our other content, including the digital edition of our magazine. Look for us on Facebook and LinkedIn. Follow us on Twitter, at SCBrain. You can also download or subscribe to the podcast on iTunes. Got any comments or suggestions on this or any episode? Email me at rbowman at supplychainbrain.com. 
See you next time.